Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Dr. Jacob Howland. Dr. Howland is a McFarland Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at the University of Tulsa, where he taught from 1988 to 2020. He published five books and roughly 60 articles and review essays on the thought of Plato, Aristotle, Xenophon, Kierkegaard, the Talmud, the Holocaust, ideological tyranny, and other subjects. A past winner of the University of Tulsa Outstanding Teacher Award and the College of Arts and Sciences Excellence in Teaching Award, he has received grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Litauer Foundation, the Earhart Foundation, and the Koch Foundation, and has lectured in Israel, France, England, Romania, Brazil, Denmark, Norway, and at universities around the United States. His most recent book is Glaucon's Fate, History, Myth, and Character in Plato's Republic, Paul Dry Books, 2018. Without further ado, Professor Helland. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into writing your book, Plato and the Talmud, and also a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, first, um, I'd like to say that I'm really glad to be on this podcast. I think this is going to be a really fun and interesting discussion. Uh, so I, um, my scholarly background was in Plato. And uh, before I, I wrote this book on Plato and the Talmud, I had um, written three other books, all having to do with Plato. Uh, one was on Plato's Republic, comparing it sort of to um, the Odyssey and presenting as a kind of Odyssey of philosophy. Another was on uh, a sequence of dialogues in Plato, uh, the Theotetus, Sophist, and Statesman, where Socrates undergoes, at the same time as his public trial, when he's being tried by the Athenians for impiety and corrupting the young, he undergoes a kind of philosophical trial that's conducted by a stranger, um, a philosophical stranger from a place called Elia. Um, and then I wrote a book on Kierkegaard and Socrates because um, later philosophers love Socrates and they all have their own version of Socrates. And Kierkegaard um, considered himself a kind of Christian Socrates. Uh, so I had already sort of dealt with um, comparing a sort of Christian perspective with a Socratic perspective and seeing what that generated. And I realized it's actually very interesting to bring different traditions into connection with each other because you can find similarities and you can find differences and fundamental questions, I think, become illuminated that way. So then I, I belonged to a conservative congregation in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and around 1998, uh, our rabbi said, hey, we're going to begin Talmud studies. And I hadn't studied the Talmud before. So I start reading the Talmud. Uh, I think we began with some stuff in Baba Metzia, and then we turned to Ta'anit, and then we did some stuff from Sanhedrin. Um, and I thought, this stuff is really familiar. Because if your listeners have read Plato, they know that we have these things called dialogues, which are really philosophical dramas. And in these philosophical dramas, um, most often the character of Socrates appears. Socrates was the teacher of Plato. And there are discussions and debates. Some of them grow a little bit rancorous occasionally, but most of the time they're not. Um, about fundamental issues, fundamental issues like how to live, what is justice, what is piety, and so forth. And the dialogues often do not reach resolution. So they'll discuss a topic, 
there's a wonderful dialogue called the lackeys where the question is what is courage and socrates is talking to a couple of generals who as you might guess are a little bit embarrassed that they can't give an account of <laughs> courage and the dialogue seems to end as many dialogues do with an admission of ignorance i guess we really don't know what courage is we're going to have to keep talking about this now that reminded me of the Talmud, or rather the Talmud reminded me of those dialogues, because what you get is a kind of colloquy, a, a discussion, a conversation between, you know, hundreds of, if you look over the whole Talmud, which by the way, I'm not an expert in the whole Talmud, I certainly haven't read the whole Talmud, but you have hundreds of rabbis debating and discussing all kinds of issues, and they move, and by the way, this is also characteristic of the Platonic dialogues, from the most sort of immediate practical questions right to the most abstract and kind of eternal questions mm -hmm. um the platonic dialogues do that too because um they all sort of start out on a very basic level uh with a practical concern and then philosophy grows out of the questions that are presented to you in practice right so i mean you know in the talmud it might be a case where uh, your neighbor's tomatoes are leaning over onto your land and can you pick them and so forth. And then this kind of, you can, you can sort of on a dime, so you can turn on a dime into some kind of metaphysical discussion about, about the almighty and so forth. Um, so having noticed this, I mentioned it to some people. Uh, Jacob Neusner, the sort of great uh, Talmud scholar uh, was visiting. And I said, uh, gosh, there's this similarity. He says, oh, you should write a book on it. Right. I thought, wow, that's that's a bridge too far. And then we had uh, Rabbi Irving Greenberg in, and he told me the same thing. And I thought, well, why not? And once I got into it, I began to um, rethink what I had read in Leo Strauss. Okay, So, of course, Leo Strauss, the great um, German Jew who came to the United States in the 30s, um, and single-handedly, I would say... Um, produced the discipline of political theory in the United States by bringing a method of reading texts very closely and trying to understand, you know, the author's perspective in the most charitable and generous way. Um, Strauss argued that, um, that the philosophical tradition and the religious tradition, uh, and, and in particular Judaism, are radically incompatible, right? He says, look, um, they're incompatible in their conceptions of wisdom and in how to achieve it, right? So uh, the beginning, he says, of wisdom for the Jew is fear of the Lord and love of God. And the beginning for philosophy is love of the good, right? And love of truth. Um, the objects of wisdom are different too, because in Greek philosophy, the Greeks are, are very um, interested in distinguishing between what they call namos, law, sort of conventional law that you might find, custom, unwritten custom, written law in a particular city, uh, and nature, right? And nature is not simply scientific nature, but a kind of the, the sort of natural order of the universe, right? And, um, and, and Strauss points out that the, that the beginning of philosophy really is wonder, and, the be and, 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 and it pursues a kind of autonomous understanding that human beings can come to the truth through their own rational reflection. Um, whereas, whereas in Judaism, the emphasis is on obedience and humility. Revelation. 
Exactly. Yeah. And and so, you know, what I realized, and I'll stop here and, and, and see if you have any thoughts about what I've said so far, is that the picture changes if you consider not the Bible and Greek philosophy, and here I should say the way Strauss terms it is Athens and Jerusalem, right? That the, the, the tension between Athens and Jerusalem, which incidentally he saw as a kind of spring, a kind of energizing tension that's at the heart of Western civilization, and I think that's right. Um, the picture changes if you don't think of Athens and Jerusalem, Bible and Greek philosophy in general, but rather Plato and the Talmud, okay? Um, so as I started to think about this, I realized here are, here are some connections. This, is, this can be sort of a long list, but let me let me mention some of them. Both of these texts focus on questions and not on answers. Um, they both are full of sort of paradoxes and inconsistencies, right? Uh, and, 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 and contradictions. And, and that's often the beginning point, as you know, in Talmudic discussion is, you know, well, there seems to be a contradiction here. Let's see if we can resolve this. Um, both of them end up in a kind of open-ended way. Very often these um, sugyot, you know, they don't, they don't, these, these Talmudic discussions don't come to a definitive answer, right? And, and they present a range of opinions. So for example, in the dialogue, you might have Socrates talking with in the beginning of the Republic Thrasymachus, who argues that, you know, justice is simply the, the interest of the stronger, you know, and Socrates has a much sort of moral moral perspective, and then maybe someone else has another perspective. And it's the reader who has to sort this out and decide where he or she uh, is going to stand, right? Which of these perspectives are you going to embrace? Another thing I have to say is that, you know, the dialogues, there's been some argument, and I don't take a stance on this, that the Platonic dialogues, which as I said earlier, are philosophical dramas, were actually performed, okay? And I mention that because they invite reading in a in a group right i mean you do when you read a dialogue the best way to do it is to sit and talk with other people and, and kind of discuss these perspectives and obviously talmud is meant to be studied in a group so going beyond this now so those are kind of formal similarities but let's look at sort of the content what's at stake in the talmud ultimately well one of the fundamental issues is how we should live right how to live and for example, what it means to live according to the law of God, right? When you apply that to the particulars of your existence. The same thing is true in the Platonic dialogues. The question of the best life, the good life, the just life is front and center. Um, and, 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 and both the Talmud and the dialogues are focused on law. Now, law has a different meaning in the Greek context because it's not revealed law. Um, and morality, right? Uh, and the point of these texts is always to unite study and action, intellectual and moral virtue. It's not simply to be a scholar. It's not simply to have the best understanding of the Torah, right? You have to live Torah. It has to translate. It has to translate into your life. It has to be, let me put it this way. One of the issues is how do you internalize it? How do you take it into your soul? And how does it become an animating principle of your life, right? And so 
it's also the case with Socrates, you know, um, his the active and contemplative lives are inseparable. Socrates, so Plato had this uh, this doctrine, if you will, of the ideas. So what are the ideas? The ideas are uh, the eternal being and truth of a thing, right? So the, the idea of justice is kind of this sort of pure concept of justice that uh, one could either live up to or fail to live up to. And Socrates is constantly trying to live up to the ideas. And that requires two things, right? It requires trying to intellectually cognize the ideas, to understand them, to know them. Now, this is unfortunately um, a process that one can never be certain about, right? So Socrates is constantly inquiring, um, and um, but he's but he always has humility. He's always ready to say, "Here's here's the way I look at this, but if someone else has a better idea, I'm ready to learn from you." So. The, there is doubt on the way up to the idea, right? You know, and we might compare that to, have we understood Torah correctly, right? Have we understood what this means, what this book means? And then it's not just that, you got to bring it down into your life. And that, of course, is a, a very interesting problem because the way the Greeks would frame that is to bring what you know into your life requires practical wisdom, requires sound judgment. There's no, in any given circumstance in life, there's no, um, there's no cheating. There's no app that says like the justice app, you know, right? <laughs> you push and says, do this or do that. Right. You got to have that. And the problem is, and I think this is, the, I think the Talmud understands this, that cannot be systematically formulated, right? You, there's no, there's no sort of guidebook, right? As much as, as as the greatest minds in the world have thought about you, there's no guidebook that tells you what you need to do right now in this particular context, in this situation. Rather, there is a kind of ethos, right? A kind of, um, uh, well, um, Eliezer Berkovitz calls it the halakhic conscience. And another rabbi uh, named Max Kadushan, who I talk about in the book, talks about the value concepts of rabbinic judaism this is sort of living torah but you can't you can't say right you can't formulate in some kind of systematic way um, um, the knowledge that is involved in living up to torah uh, living up to the law but you can show it and you can show it mimetically you can show it through a gothic narrative you can show it in the platonic dialogues through these dramas about Socrates, and let's just take Socrates. We see him speaking, we see him acting, we see him um, defying the command of the uh, Athenians uh, in the case brought against him to stop philosophizing. We see him in jail in a dialogue called the Crito, refusing to escape from jail. Love that one. Yeah. One of my favorite ones. Yeah, and, and so, you know, this itself provokes reflection. Why Why won't, you know, Socrates believes that he was unjustly convicted, but he's not going to escape from jail. And he has arguments for, because we have to obey the law, right? So this is a sort of interesting paradigm. The law is bigger than his life. Yeah. The law is bigger than his life, exactly. So what I realized is that in the narrative Agadah about the sages, and by the way, the reason I chose Ta'ani 3 is it's loaded with great stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of different sages, different sages who are, uh, 
um, approaching the same matters often in, you know, sort of diametrically opposed ways, um, is that these stories um, show uh, what it what it means not just to think like a sage, right, which we get with, say, halakhic disputation and so forth, but what it means to be a sage, what it means to live like a sage. Now, here's another thought going even deeper. I realized that the dialogues and the Talmud are ultimately responses to something like civilizational crisis, okay? Uh, so let's just take the Platonic dialogues. Here's Plato. He's uh, born in around 428 BCE in the, near the beginning of the Peloponnesian War. The war goes on. It's a war between Athens and her allies in Sparta. They're called the Peloponnesians. 404 BC, the Spartans are finally victorious. And they set up a, a puppet government in Athens. And unfortunately, by the way, run by some of Plato's relatives. <laughs> That's a whole interesting story because Plato was invited to join the regime. And then he said, you know, I thought they were going to restore the city to justice and so forth. And incidentally, his view was that the Athenian democracy, which was a direct democracy and kind of, he, he regarded um, that regime as having made tremendous mistakes, as having been uh, greedy for wealth and power. And the people were like, yes, let's do crazy things like send our whole Navy over to Sicily and conquer these cities and we'll do all this. And they failed miserably. And Plato had a kind of aristocratic attitude and he thought, no, we got to have, you know, an aristocratic regime and restore it to the city, to its health. And then he realized, he, he writes in a famous document called The Seventh Letter, then I realized that the old regime was a, was a thing of gold compared to this one, right? And he withdrew. Those guys prosecuted, those guys persecuted Socrates. They forbid him to philosophize. And, and, uh, and then ultimately, when they were overthrown, this group of oligarchs known as the 30 tyrants, um, Socrates was uh, prosecuted by the restored democracy uh, for various reasons that I won't go into. But and then so Plato's teacher is then put to death. And by the way, all the students of Plato regarded him as the most just, the most um, truthful, the most brilliant man, you know, they had ever met. Xenophon, another student of Socrates, talks about him this way. Um, and so, you know, if I had been Plato, I thought about this, I would probably just, you know, become a complete cynic and a nihilist and, you know, retreat and just, but his response is, I'm going to write 35 dialogues. I'm going to write 35 dialogues. And those dialogues are going to be focused on Socrates and the life of Socrates. They're going to be focused on the past. So he's writing now in the fourth century from like, you know, Socrates is executed in 399 and then Plato writes for the next 30, 40 years. And they're going to, they're going to sort of revive this world yep. before it collapsed before the city of Athens lost its autonomy, before the great Socrates was killed, before the end of everything great, the, the, the fifth century had Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides and Themistocles and Thucydides and Pericles and, you know, and Socrates and so forth. Um, that, that was all swept away. That was the kind of golden age swept away. So what's he doing? He, he wants us to internalize the past. He wants us to, to, um, to, um, well, you know, what, what he does is he produces a curriculum, a new curriculum for a broken age, right? And, and sort of single-handedly 
you know, I, I don't know if there was success in Athens exactly, although Plato did teach Aristotle. And then Aristotle, by the way, had a very famous student who did not become a philosopher. That was Alexander the Great. So, you know, things kind of went awry a little bit there. But um, but um, to, to produce a, a, a curriculum in the examined life that would restore some kind of health to the city of Athens. Talmud is even greater success, right? So this oh, yeah. destruction of the second temple, yeah. no locus of contact with God, no priests, no sacrifice. No prophets. No prophets. What are you going to do? And rabbinic Judaism is reborn. And it is reborn, as we know, right? We, we, you know, we get the Mishnah, we get the Gemara, and and those texts, I mean, the Babylonian Talmud, 2.5 million words, right? The Jerusalem Talmud, what is it, a million words, something like this? These, I contend, are also curricula to form. These are formative texts that are trying to establish um, attitudes and virtues uh, in the souls of their readers and to orient them toward um, health and justice and goodness uh, and um you know, to produce flourishing communities and so forth. So I think that there's there's a sense of, I mean, I've always, you know, to me, the the rabbinic response to Judaism, like the rabbinic response to the crisis of the Second Temple is the most evident proof of the fecundity, the fruitfulness of the Jewish tradition. You know, to, to be able to, to look at a world and say, our world has collapsed. It is fractured. The things we depended on are gone. Now what are we going to do? Uh, there's a guy named um, Rosenstock Husi, uh, who is 20th century intellectual. And he said something like, a citizen is a person who, if the need arises, can reinvent civilization, <laughs> right? Like that's the highest level. And I think Plato and the rabbis <clears throat> engaged in exactly that kind of reinvention. Right? So this is extremely interesting. Now, let me go a little further here. The dialogues in the Talmuds and the and the Talmud look to the past, but they they present new models, new uh, new kinds of heroes. Right. So, you know, there's a tractate. There's a little story in. Uh, uh, Talmud, uh, where um, Joshua, and maybe more than one story, who's the great military hero, right, is represented as kind of, you know, a yeshiva bacher. He's kind of turned into this, this yes. student of, of, of Torah. Um, so, so we had our, you know, we had our Joshua's, we had our, our, our great, our patriarchs. We had, these are, these are, these are very successful people. You know, Abraham, he's a warrior. He knows how to make money. He's, you know, he's, he's got it all, right? Um, now the new hero is the rabbi. In the Greek tradition, who are the heroes? Achilles, the warriors, right? Here's, he's the top. Socrates in the Apology, which is the, which is the dialogue uh, of, of his trial, implicitly compares himself. Not, he explicitly compares himself to, to Achilles. He's a new Achilles. What kind of warrior is he? He's a philosophical warrior, right? So that's very interesting. And then what I what I really realized, and this this has to do now with um, my study of Plato, uh, is that there is a sense to use um, Strauss's terms 
in which Athens can be found at the heart of Jerusalem and Jerusalem can be found at the heart of Athens. Now, what do I mean by that? The Talmud and the Platonic dialogues express a certain tension between rational inquiry and faith, right? Or between what can be known through rational discussion and so forth and, and these mysteries that are sort of beyond the ken of those who are engaging in this rational inquiry. Uh, there's a great book by Menachem Fish called Rational Rabbis. And in fact, it's funny because his introduction is like 40 pages long. He's comparing the um, Talmudic rabbis. Uh, he's talking about Karl Popper. Karl Popper was a logician, a philosopher of science, right? Who sort of developed this idea of falsifiability. Popper's claim is that uh, you can't you can't prove a theory. Like, let's say, uh, you know, uh, you can't prove the law of gravity. You can formulate the law of gravity. And then you can conduct experiments that would falsify uh, your understanding of the law of gravity. So, for example, the law of gravity indicates that, you know, if I let go of this pen, it's going to fall, right? Well, that did not falsify my little experiment. If you're listening on the podcast, I dropped the pen and it fell into my hand. Hmm. So, so far, the law of gravity has not been falsified. So Popper lays out a kind of whole method of scientific inquiry. And Menachem Fish in his book on rational rabbis suggests that the rabbis are essentially sort of Popperian inquirers, right? Who sort of formulate hypotheses and then they see if they can explain the evidence. And then if they find evidence that falsifies it, they change the hypotheses. So, so, so we know that the, that the Talmudic rabbis are rational. What about Socrates? Now here's something I take seriously. And there is a school of thought of certainly some Straussians that thinks it's all ironic and so forth. But if you read the Apology, Socrates tells the following story. How did I begin philosophizing? Well, I had a friend and the friend went to the Oracle of Delphi. Now, what is an Oracle? An Oracle is a location where the gods speak, right? And it's a temple usually, right? And um, there are priestesses in the case of Delphi and they interpret certain signs and they tell you what the God's answer is. So, so his friend Chirophon goes to the Oracle and he asks the Oracle, is there anyone wiser than Socrates? And the Oracle answers with the shortest revelation, I want to say in history. <laughs> and the answer is no. And here's what Socrates says. He says, this really puzzled me because I look into my soul and I say, I'm not wise, right? But, and here's the faith part, I know that the oracle cannot have uttered a falsehood. Here's his principle. His principle is the gods, why can't they utter a falsehood? Because either that would mean they're ignorant and the gods are not ignorant, or they're liars and the gods are not liars. Now, let me pause here for a second. In the Greek tradition, in the Iliad, for example, in the Odyssey, the gods lie all the time, yeah. all the time. They take on different shapes. They're totally undependable. They will lie, for example, to get revenge on uh, somebody they want to see, uh, you know, come to grief. But here's Socrates. And, and he has this notion. No, no, no. The God, it's not sanctioned for the gods to utter falsehoods. So I have to take this seriously. Is there an argument? No. He just asserts it. By the way, in other goes, against, goes against his general principles, not ask, not 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 furthering 
not furthering the idea. Just kind of, yeah, that's it. Got to take it seriously. Got to take it seriously. You don't find it anywhere in, in Socrates besides there. Yeah, exactly. So there it is. And he says, uh, so that's so, so then I thought, well, you know what I'm going to do? And this is very interesting. I'm going to go find someone who's wiser than me. And I'm going to bring him back to the oracle. And I'm going to say, you told me that I was the wisest. But uh, this guy's wiser. Now, incidentally, some people have said this shows he's irreligious, right? Because he wants to show that the gods have lied or that they're ignorant. On the contrary, Socrates wants to engage in a Socratic conversation <laughs> with the gods. This is another connection with Talmud, incidentally. I mean, one of the great things about Talmud are the interactions between God's, God and human beings. Yeah. It's just amazing. And by the way, God has a sense of humor, which is fantastic. Totally. <laughs> it, it's absolutely fantastic. So, you know, you know, and and it's 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 really lovely. And and in fact, we see, for example, in the oven of Afnai story, which I, I might talk about later, um, there's a point at which um uh a rabbi stands up to God and says, By the way, you don't really have a role in this conversation, right? You, you have spoken, but, but you know, let us sort this out, right? Which is really, you might say almost it's impertinent, you know? Uh, so, so that's one of the cool things. Um, so, so then I realized like, okay, if this is correct, then the greatest, like Socrates is regarded as one of, if not the greatest philosophers in history, right? Uh, certainly the first philosopher, as as Cicero writes, to bring philosophy down from the heavens. Because before Socrates, by the way, the, they had what were called pre-Socratic philosophers, and their questions were very like, where did everything come from? Did it come from water? Did it come from fire? What are things made of? And sort of physical, physicist questions. And Socrates brought philosophy down, started inquiring about good and bad and just and unjust and so forth, brought it into the, the cities of, of men, as, as Cicero says. So here's this original philosopher, and, it, and his philosophizing is rooted in faith. I forgot to finish the story. He goes around and he says, he starts talking to people and he realizes, these guys don't know what they're talking about because they think they're wise, but they're not. So I am wiser just by this little bit because I know I'm not wise. But it's that Oracle of Delphi sets him off on his life, which is really, you could sum it up as an attempt to understand what is wisdom and who is Socrates? Who am I? And what does it mean to be wise? And, and so, and so, so yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that um, the, the Oracle of Delphi, I remember my first dialogue that I read from Plato was Apology. My mm -hmm. rabbi, Rabbi Maruf, I said I wanted to I wanted to learn Plato. And he's like, if you're going to learn Plato, you got to start with Apology. It's sort of an intro, as you as you just mentioned, right? It really sets up all the rest of the dialogues in terms of, you know, his motivation and what is wisdom and all that. And I remember I got up to the Delphi Oracle and I was completely shocked. I was totally, I was like, I was I'm like, what? Like, huh? It just, it didn't, it, it, it kind of came out of nowhere and especially for for a new reader so you bringing that in um is it just it brought me back to when I first read it and how surprised I was at that and I thought it was maybe sarcastic I thought maybe it's like you know I didn't know what to do with it at the time it was sort of like whoa you know what I mean like how do we get to this spiritual event right um with Socrates the philosopher and you just brought that up so I just the whole thing just kind of when I replayed it in my mind when you were talking about that and you were mentioning so so you're 
you're using that to show that there's there is there's a spiritual element, right? There is a Jerusalem element, right? That is really like the 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 catalyst and, and the force behind everything that uh, Socrates advanced. Yeah, you know, I I really like um, your uh, telling me that story about reading the Apology of Benzion because. You know, it's it's funny. I mean, I've I've taught the apology a million times, and and students don't really notice that, right? Oh, uh, I, but, I sat for a good five minutes. I was like, wait, <laughs> yeah, which is which is absolutely great because you know. So I mean, here I am. I'm sort of saturated in Greek philosophy. I read Talmud. I'm like, what's going on here, right? And then you're saturated. Obviously, you know a lot more Talmud than I know. I'm sure. And and you know, you come from the religious background. You're really saying, what's going on here, right? So this, this, <laughs> this, this is this is really interesting. You know, let me say a little bit more about this too. Um, it's not the only place. So Socrates uh, was actually put on trial in part because he had he kept talking about this what he called daimonion. So a daimon sometimes it's translated in English demon, but that gives a kind of uh, negative, right? Because we look like demons, you know. There's you know haunted and so forth, but really it's it's a word that means like a sort of intermediate deity, a, a kind of a let's say a lesser God that communicates to human beings, but it, it's, it's a divine voice. And Socrates talks about his divine voice. In fact, he talks about it in the apology. He says, you know, uh, well, well, once he's convicted and sentenced to death, he says, actually, this wasn't so bad because my daimonion, my little divine voice hasn't spoken to me at this time. And, and because usually it talks to me if something's going wrong. Right. And it didn't. Right. Also, there's a dialogue called the Theotetus where Socrates is talking to a young man named Theotetus and Socrates explains his um, unusual activity of like, what what do I do as a philosopher? And he compares himself as, to a midwife of souls. I talk to people and I help them to give birth to some understanding, right? I, I sort of tease it out of them. They, You know, young people are pregnant with ideas, but they don't know how to articulate them. And, and I help them to do that. And he says, the God has commanded me to do that, right? Now, again, there's so many places in the dialogues where we hear this kind of stuff that I, I don't, it just, it, it would be foolish, frankly, to rule them out. You know, one has to begin by taking them seriously. And I began that way and never ended, right? I continue to take it seriously. Here, here's a little problem, though. In the Jewish tradition, we know who God is. We learn from the beginning. The first words of the Bible, we we get the whole story and then we get all the way into Exodus. And then finally, we have the giving of the law and so forth. But, you know, and, but God has established God's bona fides, right? You know, like, why should you listen to this law, right? Well, I'm the guy who created the universe and so forth. Socrates is very interesting. And I don't know if you noticed this, Benzion, in the Apology, he never names the God. True. Now, some people say, well, it's Apollo, because the Oracle of Delphi is the Oracle of Apollo, the Temple of Apollo. But in the Republic, he talks about, and this is also a part of his effort to sort of clean up Greek religion. There's in the, the end of the second book of the Republic, he lays down some theological principles. In fact, the very first occurrence in history, as far as we know, of the word theologia, which literally means um, speech about the gods, occurs in the Republic. Socrates says, let me give you a theologia, if you will, right? 
And he lays out certain principles. The gods don't lie. They don't change shape. We already saw that from the apology, right? Um, and, and so he lays this out. But what happens in that context and elsewhere is he switches from singular to plural. The God, yeah. the gods. Why does he do this? Hmm. My own intuition is because he doesn't know whether they're one or many. What does he know about the gods? You see, um, you could read Homer and you know it's polytheism and you get their names and so forth. But by the way, the Greek historian Herodotus very tellingly writes at one point, you know, we didn't even know who the gods were or what they did until Homer told us 400 years ago, right? Which is sort of a way of saying like they're made up, you know? I mean, one can interpret it that way. But Socrates is a humble man. He doesn't know. But look at it. He doesn't know if there's one God or many, but he knows they don't lie. They tell the truth. And when they speak, you better listen to him. He knows what the characteristic of a God should be. Yes. In our minds. That doesn't mean that he knows God or that he can right. speak of the God, but he could speak of the gods in terms yes. of what should what what should be their characteristics. Yes. And one could sort of put it this way, right? Um um, without further information, because this, of course, is the massive difference between the Greek tradition and the Hebraic tradition. Uh, there's no revelation, right? Um, you're you're in the dark. So so how does Socrates proceed? He's you, you might sort of put it this way: What kind of being is worthy to be worshipped? Exactly. exactly. Now, not by the way, gods who lie or steal, or, or commit adultery, and all these horrible things that the, that the, that the Greek gods do. Um, but gods who are, who are good and just, and in fact, Socrates presents them almost as models for the philosophical life, right? To be a god is to do what is right because it is right, right? And that, in other words, they're governed by reason, you know, uh, and in in this dialogue, Euthyphro, we might talk about uh, it's a discussion of piety, and Socrates basically says, "Is something pious just because God says it is?" Right. right? Yes. Yeah. Which is a kind, which is a kind of voluntarism, right? In other words, the will of the of God makes something pious, right? So, what do we mean by piety in uh, Greek religion? Well. If we just look at the at the at the at the myths and the stories, um, if Zeus tells you to do something, you better do it. <laughs> Why? Because Zeus said it. I often put it this way: Zeus is a godfather, <laughs> right? <laughs> he's often, by the way, you know, you know, you know, he's often referred to as the father. He's a godfather, right? Now that perspective is not a very humane one it doesn't sort of say a lot about human dignity right why should i do this because zeus said so and incidentally that's what greek prophecy is too the greek diviners you know they'll cut open an animal or look at how a bird flies or they have various techniques and they tell you uh, for example before a battle every time the greeks were going to fight a battle they'd have their diviner come out and they look and like uh-oh the kidney's too big or something right <laughs> you know whatever the technique is and we shouldn't fight today it's not auspicious. The, the, the gods are not behind us. And you don't question it. Socrates hates this. Is something pious because the god says it is? 
Or does the God say something is pious because it's pious, right? <laughs> Which is right. the exact, we, we can locate the exact argument regarding mitzvot, commandments. That's the exact argument where Maimonides would vehemently suggest that yes. that it is a mitzvah is to be done because it is correct to do it, yes. not because yes. just because it was commanded, but it was commanded because there's a rational basis for it to be commanded to us. Yeah, and you know, this is really important today. I mean, you know, um, uh, the former Pope, Benedict died recently, and there's been some good articles about him. And he was a voice within the within the Catholic tradition of reason. Uh, in particular, he had strong criticisms of Islam uh, because uh, much of Islam, anyway, or much of the Islamic world, it's very voluntaristic, right? I mean, you you know, you have to submit to the will of God, and no no questioning. Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, there are also versions within Christianity. I mean, uh, I long ago made the connection between Calvinism and Islam. You know, Calvinist, Calvin teaches that there's a doctrine of double predestination. From eternity, God has, for God's own reasons, uh, decided that a few human beings will be saved and the vast majority will be damned. Right? And that's just the way it is. And we don't know why. I mean, that's just so this, this is complete kind of voluntarism. Um, incidentally, I would say willfulness is a huge problem in the world today. And those like Maimonides and others who wish to restore it, Benedict, an understanding of, of reason, right, of our rational capabilities to grasp what God has commanded or, you know, uh, it, this is ex extremely important. So, so yeah, so, um, uh, let me say one last thing about the connection, and then we can t maybe talk about some specifics in the in the, in the Talmud. Um, another thing I noticed, and that is that it looks to me like, and we can debate and discuss this, it looks to me like the Talmud is what Leo Strauss would call, or that the Talmud as a text incorporates what Leo Strauss would call esotericism. Let me ex explain by that. So um, esotericism, from the Straussian point of view, is saying different things to different audiences, okay? Uh, and it's gotten a bad reputation because the critics want to see it as like a secret teaching that's available only to a select few who understand what the author is really doing beneath the surface. But that's not it at all. Uh, I would suggest it's a recognition that different audiences have different needs and need to be met at different places. Um, we all practice esotericism, you know, in the sense that we, we, we tailor what we say to the person we're speaking to and to the occasion. Um, sort of silly example, right? But let's say you have a great aunt who loves to wear ugly hats and she comes in with her ugly hat and she asks you if if her hat looks good. What do you say? You know, you don't say, you know, Aunt Shelley, let me just lay it on the line here. You've always <laughs> worn ugly hats and so forth. No, you don't do that, right? Um, now, in what sense would, and I'll, I'll set aside the platonic dogs, but in what sense would the Talmud be esoteric? Because it connects, and this is a very interesting question, it has both a traditionalist level and a kind of anti-traditionalist level. So the traditionalist level 
is God gave the oral law to Moses at Sinai. And what we're trying to do at this late date is to reconstruct what that law was, right? It's sort of gotten corrupted over the years. My example is somebody gives you a full bowl brimming of water and you hand it to the next day, some water spills out and so forth, you keep passing it down. And that's the source of the debates between the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai and so forth. And we're reconstructing what we know is authoritative and true because it was given to Moses by God. Or maybe it's possible for there to be new understandings and new insights as we move forward. And there's a kind of anti-traditionalist strain in the Talmud as well, where it's suggested that, you know, the road from Sinai isn't completely paved, but we can sort of extend it further. And so I see this as a kind of way of giving readers what they need, right? And by the way, the Talmud doesn't decide this question. It just presents two perspectives. Correct. So that's, I think, an interesting thing. Go ahead. Interesting because the, so, so the Geonic view, the Geonim, right, they, they took the former and said it was basically there was stuff that got like, you know, uh, corrupted and to reconstruct. Maimonides, though, believes that essential within Mo Moses giving over the oral law was also certain principles that the rabbis with authority can actually create new with. They can create new uh, laws. I want to say there are details in the laws, maybe new laws, the wrong word, but there are details, yeah. let's say unexplained details, right? That are kind of left to the, to the, to, to the, to the sages to, by using certain methodology, the, you know, Kalva Homer, Kalal Prat, Pratuklal, using those right. uh, given, given principles, they yes. can actually create a new, and that's actually meant to be. So it's kind of both sides of the coin are actually being played out over there. Right. Yeah. There, are, there are there's that tradition that got kind of maybe somewhat corrupted that needs to be reconstructed. But along with that, right, Maimonides also inserts the fact that, yeah, the, the rabbis did have certain authority to fill in details. Right. Or even create new uh, customs or whatnot based on, you know, their times. So that's just interesting because there's actually a, a little playoff that goes on, you know, based of what based off of what you said between the Gronim and the Rambam. Yeah, and, it, you know, what's interesting, too, is that, so here's another comparison with Socrates. Um, you know, he is accused of, uh, the actual charges that were brought against him at his trial were um, not acknowledging the gods of Athens, sort of not sort of, the Greek word is uh, nomidzain, it means like customarily acknowledging, like not, not in accordance with custom acknowledging the gods in the customary way, but introducing new deities, Okay. And I already pointed out he's 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 critical of the Greek gods, right? And he presents a picture of the gods that's quite different from what you read in Homer, for example. But there's another sense in which Socrates is super traditional. He embraced so in Homer, there's a fundamental contradiction. Uh, if you read the Odyssey, um, uh, there's a passage so Odysseus has gone home and he's in disguise and he's being mistreated by the men who have invaded his house and are trying to marry his wife and. Uh, and there's a discussion about somebody says, oh, and he's he's dressed as a beggar. And, and one of these suitors of his wife, there's 108 of them in, in the house, has like thrown a stool at him and they're berating Odysseus. They don't know it's Odysseus. And somebody says, don't you know that the gods wander through the cities of men observing our deeds? 
and seeing whether we're just or unjust. And, and in fact, ultimately justice is done. And with the aid of Athena, Odysseus defeats the suitors. He kills them all. <laughs> he, you know, and, 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 and he achieves victory. Um, and we see this elsewhere in the Greek myths, that we got these two contradictory views. Zeus commits, you know, all kinds of crimes and adultery and so forth, but he's also an agent of justice. Well, Socrates grabs onto that. Gods are agents of justice. He holds to the idea, the customary ideals of filial piety, right? You you respect your fathers. You respect, and 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 by the way, of course, there's the this idea of fundamental respect for law, mm. um, and so, um, you know, and and as I said, he he believes that what the oracle said that the oracle is a site of contact with the divine. So there's a kind of interesting tension between these things, and I think that's another point of. Um, uh, connection um, with um, the Talmud. Wonderful, wonderful Amazing segment. segment. Incredible. Um, for the second segment, what we would like to do is to have you go into um, the examples that you provide in your book, which is Chonia Magel, which is a story that you zoom in on to bring to life these ideas that you were mentioning before in the previous segment, and uh, you thifro with uh, apology. If you can, if you can so sort of give us an overview and kind of get into that um, to. Yeah. Sure, thanks. Um, so one of the stories that I talk about, which will be familiar to your listeners, is the story of Honi uh, Hameagel, Honi the circle drawer. And this story occurs uh, before the rabbinic period, um, during the time of the Sanhedrin. Um, there is the head of the Sanhedrin is a guy named Shimon ben Shetach. Um, and um, Who's who's an who's an important sage who is um, devoted to the law and to following the law, um, and uh, you know th there's actually a famous story about Shimon. Uh, he sees a guy go into a house with a knife. Um, the guy comes out of the house two minutes later, covered with blood. The knife is covered with blood. He goes in the house. He finds someone dead. He's been stabbed. But what can Shimon do? Because the law is you got to have two witnesses to a crime. Uh, and I could multiply examples, but he, you know, he's he's sort of very rational, rationalistic. This is what the law does. We abide by the law. He also is, he's uh, strictly devoted to the law, but he also has a kind of proto-rabbinic understanding. How do you earn merit? You earn merit through study, right? You earn merit through this, you know, devotion to unpacking law and, and debating and understanding it. Now, this Honey character uh, doesn't quite fit that paradigm. And, and I should I should back up because this is in the, the context of a discussion in Ta'ani, uh, which raises questions about how can we tell when something is a curse or a blessing? How can we tell who is deserving and who is not? These are sort of general issues in the air. And the context here is um, there's a drought. A drought's going on, a drought's going on. The rabbis have prayed. They've prayed for rain. A natural way to interpret this is that, you know, God is punishing uh, the people because of some perhaps unknown or unspecified sin. And 
God won't bring rain. Because, of course, we read over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures that, you know, if you, you know, walk in my ways, adhere to the law and so forth, you're going to get rain, you're going to get food. And otherwise, no. So the story is told in various ways. It's told in the mission. It's told in the Gemara. Um, in one case, I think the disciples come to Choni because he's got these disciples. <laughs> and in another case, the I think the people come to him directly. But in any case, they know that Choni has the capacity to, he's got some kind of direct line to God and he can sort of work what looks like miracles. And by the way, miracles is another big, big uh, uh, theme in this section of Ta'anit, um, uh, which is a real interest to rabbinic Judaism because miracles are these, you know, unforeseen interventions into sort of the rational order of the world. And it presents a problem. Like, why would there be miracles? For example, if there are miracles, is is God, is that a sort of implicit admission that the world wasn't set up right at the beginning, you know, that there has to be this intervention at this point? Yeah. So how do we understand miracles? So that's a whole nother set of issues. Um, but anyway, Choni comes in and he begins behaving in a very strange way. He draws a circle around himself and he talks directly to God and he says, I'm not going to leave this circle until you give me rain. Like, what? And sure enough, little drops start coming down, tiny little mists, not very much, you know. And then Honey says, I didn't ask for this. <laughs> this not rain. I want rain. And then the rabbis report, you know, drops like the size of an orange start coming down. I mean, they're just huge. They just inundate. Right. And meanwhile, the disciples or the people are standing there looking on and they're like, and they're, they're depicted by the way, as fearful children, fearful children. In fact, um, they refer to Choni as, uh, well, actually I think in, in the first story, it's actually children who go to him and say, my father, my father bring rain. And Choni says something like these kids don't understand, you know, that it's, the father in heaven who brings rain, not me, right? But they sort of treat him as this. And there's a suggestion throughout that, in which he sort of confirms, in, you know, what he says, that um, that um, uh, the people don't, you know, that they're that they're very childish and they're sort of incapable of thinking, even sort of thinking for themselves. So anyway, all this rain comes down, and and and. And people freak out. They're like, uh-oh, now we're going to, you know, we're going to uh, drown, right? <laughs> and Choni's like, it's sort of a Goldilocks story, right? He's like, I didn't ask for a flood, you know? So, and then the right amount of rain comes, right? Now, Shimon ben Shetach has been watching all this. And he says to him something like, if you weren't Choni, I would decree a ban on you. Now, what does that mean? I, it, it sort of expresses this perplexity because here's Choni. He's not a sage. Um, the Gemara, by the way, sort of tries to turn him into a sage, but he's he's not a sage. He's got some special relationship to God. He actually says at one point that to God, he's like a son of his house, right? And he behaves in a way that is very unfitting, according to Shimon's lights. Um and to say, if you weren't Honi, I'd decree a ban on you. And by the way, Shimon is well known. This is part of his rationalism. 
for having executed like 80 witches in Ashkelon. Yeah. He doesn't like, <laughs> you know, he's very suspicious of people who look like miracle workers or harnessing, you know, mysterious powers and so forth. He's no friend of mysterious powers. So, so when he says, I would decree a ban on you, like, how far does that go? I mean, this is a dangerous thing. But then he says, if you weren't honey, and I, I think what that means is like, you got results, right? And ultimately, I have to acknowledge I, I'm expanding. He's stuck. Here. He's stuck. Yeah. He's stuck. Yeah. But I he mean, didn't get. He also didn't get the right amount. That's the thing. He well, got eventually, a bit, he yeah, did. eventually, but it took time. It's not like a right, right, right. So, um, so, I mean, I think it's an acknowledgement that. I could sort of sum it up this way. You have a special relationship to God that I do not exactly comprehend. Kashima goes on and says, you behave like a spoiled child. You behave like a spoiled child. You're, you know, one doesn't talk to God this way. One doesn't make demands this way. Um, and, you know, he's fundamentally perplexed about what to do about this because it challenges his entire rational framework mm -hmm. uh he represents a text-based system of law that's rational and teachable as i said there, there are other rabbis who are associated with the capacity for example rabbi eliezer in um the oven of Achnai story just to give one example who has some kind of capacity like like the, has the ear of god let's say and and, and can perform certain sorts of miraculous actions but rabbi eliezer has his powers because he is the best student of torah you know around like he has earned that merit he has right. proven Hodi has not why is this guy who's so importunate and who doesn't have any of the capabilities that you would ordinarily associate with what we believe produces merit in the eyes of god remember i said it who is meritorious and who's not so you kind of shakes up Shimon's worldview. Uh, why is this the case? Yeah, please. You have an interesting footnote just before you go on with this because you're you're going to take it to a lot of places, yeah. but I wanted to just, this tension that you mentioned, you bring um, Safrai, Safrai, I don't know how to mention his name. Uh -huh. What what's Who's that guy? Saf Safrai, um, which basically wants to put Choni into the Hasidic camp not, when we say Hasidic, we mean the Hasidim Rishonim um, of, of the Talmud. And he has an interesting, I was just hoping you can just like tell a little bit about that little, that, yeah, that which, view. Do page, you happen to have that footnote? <laughs> yeah, it's page 82, footnote, okay. footnote 11. All right. I'm going to have to re reacquaint myself. Yes, Ephraim. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so... We've got these Hasidic charismatics. I guess this is Safrai's phrase. Uh, Safrai's phrase, um, uh, and so these are these kind of uh, uh, miracle workers, a, a kind of uh, pietists. Yes, yes, they are. They are pietists um, uh, who value deeds more than study and whose actions displayed confidence in providence and in the salvation route resulting from right behavior and even in the miracles which were to be revealed to them, according to Safrai. So Choni is sort of a representative of this group. And what is suggested here is that the story 
reflects this uneasy relationship between these Hasidic charismatics and these Pharisaic sages like Shimon ben Shetach. So What's that, interesting? Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because in in yeshiva, it's no one really, no one really puts like a barrier between the Hasidim Rishonim and the sages. Mm -hmm. They're kind of just put all together in one lump. It's just like you know, maybe a more yeah. devotional well, aspect within the sages. Or well, you mentioned that you mentioned the that the Gemara tries to make Choni into kind of a rabbi, but he's not. So right. no, that, yeah, that would actually yeah. go against what he's saying here. But I think that you mentioned in your book that the Gemara is the, when the Tom when when the when the Gemara interjects within the story, it's framing it a little bit differently than the Mishnah. So there's yes. a little bit, yeah. Okay, so you'll you'll yeah. Yeah, so so I mean, so first a couple things to notice here. Um the Talmud, which I you know, I, I think it's fair to say that the, the general attitude of the Talmud is on the side of Shimon, you know. Um because um, you know, it, it there are there are principles of interpretation, there are principles of debate, there's principles of discussion. We see constant dispute and interpretation and argumentation over halakhic practices. Um, but what's amazing is that it includes this story, right? And I shouldn't say that what's amazing about the Talmud is it includes this story. The Talmud includes these kinds of stories all the time. What do I mean by these kinds of stories? Stories that call into question their own institution, their own institutions, their own presuppositions. And, you know, what's the point of doing that? Well, they, these kinds of stories do a couple of things. One thing is, Shimon is reminded and the reader is reminded that there is, you know, to quote Hamlet, there's more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy, right? That there are limitations to the human understanding. One of the things I talk about in my book, you know, I've got this wonderful episode of Elazar and the Ugly Man, right? He's riding along on an ass and and he's, you know, he thinks that, oh, I'm, I'm so great. I'm a Talmudic scholar and so forth and runs into an ugly man and he says, is everyone from your village this ugly? You know, and the ugly man says, uh, I don't know. Why don't you go ask my maker? Why don't you ask the guy who made me? Right. And it sort of shocks him. Right. He actually learns Torah from this guy. Right. This anonymous man. And he's brought up short. He's 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 like there's an induced humility in this case. Um, this is one of the things about Judaism, by the way. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the same um, the same uh, Bible that lays out very clearly. Right. You adhere to the law. You walk in my ways and so forth. You're going to get rain. You're going to get fruit. It's all going to be. And not, if not, not. It has the book of Job. Yeah. I mean, this is really amazing that like, because so Judaism has, I would call this a, a philosophical element, right? In other words, never forget that you are a human being and that as smart as you are and as learned as you are, you have to be humble because you cannot understand everything. Um, at the same time, of course, the Talmud celebrates, you know, the majesty of intellect, right? So I'm thinking of Soloveitchik's famous article on, you know, majesty and humility. Mm -hmm. And there's something like that in Socrates too, by the way, because Socrates is going around and saying, and this is very paradoxical, I am the wisest human being. You know why? Because I know that I'm not wise. <laughs> and... So is he humble or is he arrogant? You know, it's very interesting paradoxes. Kierkegaard says somewhere, incidentally, that the paradox is the passion of thought. And a thinker without a paradox is like a lover without passion. Right? 
And I think that's right. I think that applies to Judaism. I think it applies to Plato. It's these contradictions. So here's another contradiction that you mentioned, Vincent. The Gemara turns Honi into a rabbi. Yeah. In fact, the later part of the story, which is really sort of tragic, it goes on to talk about Honi. And you almost might say, this is not quite fair. If I were going to put it really strongly and from the point of view of a maybe uh, excessively critical person, I'd say the Gemara gets its revenge on Honi. Because, <laughs> because what happens is, right? And, 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 and it gets its revenge on Honi in a way that shows that he's not, like he he doesn't lead anywhere. He's not, he's, well, first of all, he's an isolated guy, right? Here's this Choni. He doesn't fit into the framework of Shimon. And I think the circle around him kind of almost is a suggestion of how cut off he is. Yes. Because, you know, how do you, so here's a question. How can a person whose excellence, if you will, or whose power consists in a special relationship with God, which nobody can quite understand, have any offspring, intellectual offspring? Can, is there a future for that kind of person, right? Um, now, the thing is, in rabbinic Judaism, there's always a future because you have houses of study and you have traditions and people can learn and they can become expert in these things and they can become rabbis and they can pass it on from their teacher to the teacher, to the next teacher. How do you teach miracle working? If you see what I'm saying, right? you don't. So the Gemara does a couple things. It it turns him into a sage, maybe because it's a little bit uncomfortable with him. Maybe there's an irony here. I'm not sure what, but Choni, it says he always worried about this verse that in the Bible about uh, comparing, I think comparing the exile in Babylonia to 70 years of sleep, right? It's like, how could you sleep for 70 years? And He's sort of miraculously put to sleep for 70 years. Um, oh, but before that, he um, he uh, runs into a guy who's planting a carob tree. And he's like, why are you planting a carob tree? You know, the fruit from this tree, it takes decades to get anything to eat from it. Carob was a very big source of nutrition in, you know, ancient Palestine. And it, it's, it's uh, it, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's particularly good, but it's a, it was a main source of food. And the guy says, yeah, I'm not going to eat it, but my grandchildren will. Which sort of suggests that Honi kind of doesn't understand, right? Lador Vador. I mean, you've got future generations. You need to... He's and removed sort of, from the world in a sense. Yes, yes. And so he falls asleep for 70 years. And he wakes up. And he goes to the Beit Midrash, right? And they're talking about Honi. Right? They're like, you know... In the days of Choni, this would all be clear. He would explain everything and so forth, which, of course, is bizarre because, you know, according to Mishnah, like, he's not a sage. He doesn't, you know. Um, so so Choni's like, I'm Choni, right? And they don't believe him. Like, he's just, he's sort of, you know, cut off. Uh, and then he dies, right? So what's going on here? The suggestion is that Honey is, you know, he, he's sort of a one-off. There isn't a future. He's not going to make like, like, okay, they'll talk about maybe, you know, his decisions and so forth. But um, there's a, a sort of a sad end note here, which is that unlike these rabbis, 
Coney is not, there's no kind of spiritual fruitfulness that's going to endure and inform the lives of later people. Um, at least that's sort of how I look at it. It's very, it's very similar to the story of Elijah, Eliyahu and Avi, mm -hmm. in, in, in the Torah, where he, he is this zealot, zealous person for God, and he's, you know, going by the book, but essentially he, his miracles are not, he's being told by the king, you're, you're, this is going to last for a little bit of time. You're, this, this magic that you're doing, whatever it is, it's just going to impact the people for a very short period of time. And at the end, God critiques him and says this, this approach that you have of like uh, theatrics and everything like that, it's, it's not going to work. You need to use a cold you need to use a so, like a stop, soft, still voice. And that mm -hmm. and that something that can be passed on basically, and yeah. event, and eventually he's replaced by by Elisha, who basically fixes all the mistakes that that Eliyahu makes, and he's kind of seen as like a cautionary tale, uh, Eliyahu Navi. Whereas you know, say, we see kind of the same thing with with Choni. Choni is this you know miracle worker who cannot; um, it's not sustainable for for the future. It's not going to be passed on. Yeah, that's right, and you know. Um... So th th this actually sort of points in a couple of directions. I mean, I see something similar going on in the story of the oven of Athnai, which your listeners probably know a lot about. But basically, I'll just very briefly say um, it's it's a fantastic story. Um, the rabbis at the rabbinical academy at Yavne uh, are debating um, the purity of an oven. And um, Rabbi Eliezer, who, by the way, the stories about Eliezer are just like, this guy was the top guy. I mean, he, you know, uh, and actually one of the stories, I can't remember where it's drawn from, um, uh, his father didn't want him to study. His father was a rich man and he, and he goes and he studies and, and then he sort of becomes, you know, and then his father comes to Jerusalem to visit him and he finds, his father finds out, oh, this guy is respected by all the rich people and you know, he's regarded as a as a great sage. They, they and so moved on. him to the front. I think they moved him yes. to the front so that his father can see him with all the rich people. Yes, right, I right. That they kind of set it up for that. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Right. And so then, and so then, and so then the father who had disinherited him was like, I'm going to, you know, you're you're my guy, you know. He sort of reconciles with him. I'm going to give you my inheritance over. And, you know, Choni's like, to sum up very briefly, it's like, well, actually... I don't need any of that, you know. I'm he sort of positions himself as like my real father is God, you know, <laughs> something like this. Another there's a father something. But anyway, so here's Eliezer, he's the top guy, and they're debating it. And by the way, it, it's a very interesting argument that Eliezer is making, but his side is actually quite um uh sort of from a practical perspective, it's 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 a good position because the side of the rabbis is that the oven that has been, been rendered impure is completely impure. And these communal ovens were expensive and you'd have to like rebuild the whole oven. You'd have, and Eliezer has this position that like ovens come in these parts. And if one part is rendered impure, you could replace that. And so it's a less expensive and so forth. But the rabbis, they don't agree. So Eliezer, it says he gave all the arguments in the world. And by the way, they're probably really good arguments because he's the top guy. He knows you know, he's, he's the greatest Talmudic scholar around. Um, and, uh, and finally, Eliezer says, uh, let me show you if my position is right, let the carob tree jump and the carob tree jumps like 50 meters or something. And basically the rabbis are like, that's, that's irrelevant. We want an argument. You gave us a miracle. How does your ability to perform that miracle 
persuade us of the correctness of your position, right? We're playing the, the, the intellectual game we are playing is argumentation. You make an opinion, you back it up with arguments. You didn't back it up with arguments. You backed it up with a miracle. That's in effect what they're saying, I think. And then at some point it's like, let the stream flow backwards. Stream flows backwards. Let the study house walls fall and the walls out of respect for all the Asia, they fall halfway, but they stop because they, which is actually really terrible because if they had fallen, he would have killed all the other rabbis and maybe himself. But anyway, so finally, a bot cold comes, a voice from God, and says, why don't you agree with Rabbi Eliezer? Because he's always right on matters of halakha. And one of the rabbis stands up and says to God, it is not in heaven, which the rabbis interpret to mean, you gave us the Torah. We have our own system here where we examine the Torah, we reflect, we use all of our intelligent capabilities to understand what it means. And actually, God, you're not part of this debate. <laughs> and then God, it says, then Elijah went to God and God said, my children have bested me. My children, this yeah. is again the father, son, the children thing. Now, what does this mean? Well, it connects with Greek philosophy too, because in Aristotle's politics, he says, uh, if you have someone who is absolutely outstanding in virtue, you either need to make him king or you have to ostracize him. Got to get rid of him. And what the rabbis did there is they didn't challenge the view that Eliezer was right. In fact, my own intuition is they probably thought he was right. They just wanted to pick a fight. Because if Eliezer is around uh, and he's got this special sort of connection with God, okay, what are the other rabbis doing? They're just going to have to obey whatever he thinks. They're completely irrelevant. So it's a way the community sort of stands up for its own existence as a community of rational interpretation and debate. It stands up for itself, almost you might put it this way, as long as Eliezer's around, we're just children compared to him. But we want to engage in the adult activity, which all Jews are called to, of thinking for themselves, of studying Torah, of determining the truth, right? Of giving it to their best effort. And if Eliezer is around or anybody like him, we can't do that. So there's a kind of rebellion, a sort of rationalist rebellion. Uh, and then, by the way, they excommunicate Eliezer and all kinds of bad stuff happens because um, he causes miracles to sort of get back at them. Um, but the same thing happens in with regard to Socrates, because as I said, Socrates has a special relationship with the God in some way. And the same questions arise that have to do with Honi. Can Socrates, you know, is that special relationship with God uh, somehow involved in his ability or inability to produce students? Um, there is, uh, let me connect it with Honi this way and then I'll stop. Um, in the Phaedo, the dialogue where Socrates dies, uh, he's been sentenced to death and he's drinking hemlock, which is a horrible poison. And his students begin crying and they say to him, Socrates, what are we going to do without you? How will we philosophize? What will we do? And I've always thought Socrates must have been very disappointed at that because his whole effort was to help people mature, be independent thinkers, be capable of argumentation and discourse and debate and philosophize for themselves. And here they are like little children saying, without you, we can't go on, right? And there really is an interesting question. By the way, I mentioned I wrote a book on Kierkegaard and Socrates. Kierkegaard basically has this critique of Socrates. Uh, you know, 
um, the philosophic life can set you on the right path and can help you to live well and so forth if you're Socrates, right? If you are the kind of person who lives up to his best understanding, if you have tremendous intelligence, you figure things out on your own and you live up to your best understanding uh, and, um, you know, you you put your thoughts into action. There's no split between your speech and deed. You're an integrated, whole human being, a wholesome human being. But unfortunately, the rest of us aren't like Socrates, right? So this question of the reproducibility of, say, a Socratic, a good life through Socratic inquiry uh, is also challenged, I think, in the dialogues. Uh -huh. Yes. Actually, you know, I, I, I once heard a comedian, Gary Goleman, Jewish comedian, who, who said that, uh, you know, the Greeks gave us Aristotle, Plato, and and all these amazing things. And since then, they've given us Greek salad and Yanni. You know, yeah. that was a joke. And, and, and what I always wondered was, like, why, is, why wasn't that sustainable uh, for all time the way, let's say, like Jerusalem was? And, and, and the, the wisdom of the sages actually rescued Judaism from, from being obliterated. And it's actually getting stronger and stronger in a way, whereas the Greeks are, you know, their influence isn't as strong. And actually, you kind of answered that question now with, with Socrates, because it's 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 not easy to pass down something like that. It's not it's not ingrained into the layman. It's, it's not given to the, the people. So um, I don't know if, what your thoughts on that are. Oh, no, I think this is absolutely right, Ben. Um, look, uh, the the. The ground was well prepared within the Jewish tradition. I mean, you know, the Torah is uh, read aloud from the days of Ezra. You know, the Jews are are um, the traditions uh, give a very strong support for the idea that Jews are to study Torah, the words of Torah to be in their mouth. They're supposed to understand it. It is ritualistically read and studied throughout the year, the cycle. Um, and um, they placed great emphasis on uh, scholarly excellence, right? And so, you know, you had this ground for uh, a, a kind of um, general acknowledgement of the importance of these individuals we call rabbis who are, you know, um, let's say more devoted even to study than the common man. What's the situation with Socrates? Well, you know, it's it's a really it's a really uh, difficult position that he's in because the Greek, you know, he is a he's a philosopher, and the philosophers were viewed not not without reason, by the way, in some sense, as uh, kind of dangerous, and you know, they're not really part of the city. They're engaged in this activity that makes little sense to the common man. Right? What is this quest for wisdom? What are we talking about? Uh, Philosophy is not ingrained and has never been ingrained and probably will never in sort of the DNA of human communities, right? Mm -hmm. And Socrates has a terrible problem in the Apology. The most famous thing he says there, he says, you know, I'm not going to stop philosophizing. Why? And he says, because the unexamined life is not worth living, right? A life in which you don't examine and reflect and philosophize is not worth living. He's got a serious problem. You know, it's because he's talking to an audience of people who do not examine life. That, that the unexamined life is not worth living is certainly no proof that people can't lead unexamined lives. They do it all the time, right? People don't particularly think for themselves. 
uh, Bertrand Russell said something like, um, people would rather die than think for themselves. And they do, right? Mm. <laughs> like they die, you know? So, so how do you, I mean, it's almost like if I said to you, um, um, so suppose I, I learned a really difficult and esoteric, like let's say I played the harp, okay? And I said to people, look, my conviction is that a life without the capacity to play the harp on an excellent level, expert level is not worth living. Well, why would I, as a non-harpist, you know, believe that? The only way I might be led to believe that is if I devoted my life to becoming an excellent harp player, right? And then I could say, okay, now I know that he was wrong or whatever, right? Or he was right. So how do you convince somebody of the importance of these things? And it's much easier in Judaism. I mean, Plato's trying to like jumpstart a whole culture, Right. I'm going to make a new hero. He's called Socrates, a philosophical hero. I want people to look up. I want people to understand that there's a kind of transcendent realm of divinity and truth and goodness and justice and so forth and focus on that and bring that into their lives. This is a huge problem. By the way, the Christians love, you know, Plato because you can sort of, you can sort of fit this into it, right? Uh, this idea of transcendence and that there are eternal truths and so forth and that, you know, but so what they do is they just replace the good, which is the highest principle, right, of Socratic eros, Socratic longing, Socratic desire with God, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, you know, and but, but Christianity is a religion, right? So you develop these practices, people go to church, they worship in congregations, it spreads. And now you've got some kind of soil. By the way, this I think is why... If you look at American universities and you say, well, where are people really serious about philosophy? Um, and again, I'm setting aside the Jewish world, right? But let's just take like America. It's the Catholic universities that still maintain a kind of serious interest in and teaching in and scholarship in the philosophical tradition. And why is that? And, and what philosophical tradition? Well, particularly like ancient philosophy and, you know, medieval and so forth and things that are kind of compatible with let's say a, a general Catholic view of the world or something, um, it, it's because they've already got the soil, right? You know, if you go to someone and you say, "Well, you're a Christian," and by the way, here's some texts that are actually sort of in harmony with what we're doing here, and and by the way, the church fathers understood them and read them, and they critiqued them and so forth. So we're going to study them. But uh, but that's it, right? And the secular world is neither philosophical nor religious. I mean, the soil's not there. Sort of materialist in a way. Exactly, exactly. It's a it's a tricky it's a tricky and it's it's a difficult conundrum. Like, you know how how do you integrate philosophy with the common man? How do you do that? Or what's 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 the answer to that? Because yeah, yeah. anybody anybody who who has delved into philosophy or has the, any even a small philosophical bone knows that it's 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 vital right to humanity to advancing to to all the good right uh yet it's it's very difficult it's very difficult to translate that to the common man so it's it's kind of like i don't know if there's really an answer or what would be your answer if you could <laughs> if you had if you had the podium yeah, well, we would have to revise the entire educational system. That's really uh, where it goes down to. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, you know, um, we are very fortunate today uh, in in that um, we have behind us millennia of truly rich and great books. Um, 
you know, um, starting with the Hebrew Bible, um, it, it is, you know, and I mean, then, then we have this commentary on the Hebrew Bible called the New Testament, right? Uh, which is also very interesting. And, you know, these things give rise, but, but then that end in connection with the ancient Greek roots, and then the sort of Roman appropriation of that generates really serious um, reflection on moral and political and social issues um, gives a very interesting perspective. There's a lot of work to be done in sort of comparing origin tales, especially interpreted philosophically of the Greeks, right? And comparing that with the Bible and so forth. Um, and, um, but, and, and then this gives birth to, incidentally, I mean, Great literature. I mean, you you could look. Uh, I always tell students, you know, if I if I teach if I sort of I teach secular students say something from the Bible, I say, how many of you want to be writers? They raise their hand. You you want to write fiction? Okay. All the stories are in the Bible. You got to read the Bible. You know, you want to understand. Like in other words, you want to understand human nature, human beings, human longings, human conflicts, political issues. This is a source of political wisdom. This is a source of spiritual wisdom. You've got to read the Bible. No great author doesn't know the Bible, you know, Shakespeare and so forth. So, um, so, but we don't, but my, what I want to, I mean, the punchline is we don't study this stuff. Or if we do, we bring to it this kind of theoretical matrix of like, you know, political correctness or de diversity, equity, inclusion, or whatever it may be. Uh -huh. You already know what's in the books. I can already tell you we're reading this. Who is it? Thomas Jefferson. Ah, slave owner. This is the lens we're going to read this through, right? Mm -hmm. And to be able to, like, okay, why is it? If you look at 19th, 20th century, and you look at real pioneers, right, in, like, groundbreaking thought, you know, um, in sociology and psychology and, you know, all kinds of areas. They're often Jews who grew up in traditional homes, right? And the capacities, I always, I sort of think of it this way, this incredible idea that, as Ben Bogbog says, turn it and turn it for everything is in it, right? That the Torah contains all wisdom, produces, an in, it sets an incredible emphasis on the skills of interpretation, on creative thinking, on understanding. And those skills are what made, you know, like if you say, well, why do Jews win so many Nobel Prizes and so forth? It's it's in the DNA. It's these skills of, of, of saying this text deserves the greatest seriousness. And I'm going to think about it and study it and appropriate it and, and interpret it. And when it doesn't work out the way I'm hoping for, I'm going to find clever techniques of interpretation. By the way, of course, there's a guy, there's a kind of, there, there are parameters on that. Because if I go too far off, no one's going to care what I say, right? Because there are rules and principles, as you pointed out earlier, for interpretation. So working within a certain framework and getting, squeezing every last drop of meaning out of this text, that's an incredible training for intellectual activity. We don't teach students to do that. How many students come to a text and say, this text is worthy of reverence? Okay, if you're in a yeshiva, of course. But if you're in a public school in the United States, is Huckleberry Finn worthy of reverence? 
Is the Bible worthy? They're not going to even read the Bible. Is Plato worthy? They're, they're not going to read Plato. So we have to start introducing really meaningful and rich works to students and saying, rule one, approach this with interpretive charity and generosity and believe that these words are deeply meaningful and now try to understand what they mean. The and only people, then we criticize. The yeah. mistake people make is that they think that you, if you're not, a, if, let's say they were not born in a religious atmosphere or a religious family, that the Bible doesn't have to be taken seriously for them. That's the huge mistake. Yeah. That's not true. In fact, that's, that's literally almost every great thinker in human history has taken it seriously without even being Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's, that's exactly right. And in fact, What's what's so weird is let's say we were speaking to a kind of a you know progressive someone on the far left or something, and what I'd like to say to some of them is and and incidentally they're you know atheistic and like oh Christianity they're ready to they won't maybe attack Islam but Christianity I want to say to them but actually what your entire framework is a kind of decayed, decayed, secularized Christianity. Here you come and you say to me, if we just make this, so we care about justice, we care about equity. Okay, first of all, these are sort of, you know, moral categories that you come down from Christianity. But then you say, okay, we're going to create a heaven on earth. It's, it's a kind of utopia. If we just change this, if we just make things more equitable, if we just do this, we can enter into a kind of uh, more utopian society and so forth. I'm like, this is just, this is just some, some, some vert. And, and incidentally, the whole notion of like, we're the true believers, right? And we're pure. Those people are impure. They're sinful. We, you know, because they have white skin or whatever it may be, right? You know, and so all of this is just a translation of this inheritance and they have no understanding of any of this. This is a but slightly- also, They're also reading into- all of these things, even the Bible or Thomas Jefferson, as you mentioned, with a modern lens. So they're taking you completely out of the context. Yes. What was going on. And that that's also very dangerous because you need to learn from history. You need to understand what it was all about. Context. And context is very, very important. And what I think is what Bensi was talking about before about building societies based on, let's say, philosophy and rationalism, even the Jews who are quote-unquote irrational, who are, let's say, more uh, mystically oriented, they still have the the Talmudic framework for living and thinking. So, so they still are in essentially um, immersed. immersed in a rational world in right. some strange way. Right. And, and, and if it's the case to go back to this notion of the halakhic conscience or the sort of ethos of Judaism, that's got to be transmitted through a way of life. Um, and, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, there, there there are sort of versions of this. Well, one thing that we don't really do is, I guess I would call sort of intellectual apprenticeship. I mean, sometimes people think like, I can read these books, I understand everything. But if you're going to be really serious about, uh, let's say, um, doing history, right? Like, what is historical evidence? You know, how can I assess it and so forth? You got to study with a really good historian. And what you learn from that person are, modes of thinking and approaching questions and so forth that you really can't get out of a book. But that's just the sort of relationship between one individual and another. Now, if you have a whole community that is reinforcing these lessons and is bringing children up from an early age and sort of, um, you know, they're being acculturated in, in a very significant and rich way that that then transmits this, this ethos. And so I think Plato was trying to, you know, again, 
produce a curriculum that would hopefully generate a sort of uh, community, a sort of philosophical community that would then produce a sort of ethos that could then be transmitted through the generations. It didn't happen. Okay. Um, and I think you know, it's just it, it's just it's just too much. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, you, you you have to have a kind of religious basis. It's not enough to just sort of say I can I can imitate Socrates uh, because people won't. You know, yeah. mm -hmm. yeah. absolutely. Um, before we go, first of all, we want to thank you so much for your time because this was so eye opening and amazing. Uh, but before you go, we want to hear if you have anything you want to plug. Uh, book that that has come out or is coming out are you working on anything <laughs> well you know right now i am i'm what i'm working on is i'm i'm helping to start this new university called the university of austin um uh, which is here in austin texas uh and it's dedicated to uh freedom of inquiry freedom of discourse freedom of conscience um i'm the director of the intellectual foundations program here and which is a liberal studies program so, for example, we have courses in the beginning of civilization, you know, we read Genesis, we read the Odyssey, we have courses in the beginning of politics, we read Exodus, you know, we read Herodotus and so forth. So I'm trying to really begin rooting it right in the great biblical and uh, um, ancient Greek texts. And we go through, you know, um, the Western tradition. Um, and this is essentially a startup. I mean, we've been raising lots of money and so forth. So I haven't had a chance to be working on any books. I have actually been, I've turned to writing on literature, uh, written probably eight essays now for the new criterion on things like, uh, latest one was on the Brothers Karamazov. I've written on uh, 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 literature in the Soviet period. I'm sort of focused on totalitarianism now and and, and kind of sussing out the, uh, let's say, the, the, the increasingly hardening ideological uh, domination of politics and so forth. Um, so I've been doing short essays. If if readers are interested in 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 Plato, I would direct them to my last book, which already now is five years old. In 2018, I wrote a book called Glaucon's Fate: History, Myth, and Character in Plato's Republic. And I I'm actually very proud of that book. It's the second book I've written on the Republic, and uh, it gives you, I think, a very uh, rich sense of the, both the historical context um, and um, of Socratic philosophizing and some of the mistakes that Socrates made. It's actually about the fate of Plato's brother Glaucon, who is one of the main, the main interlocutor of Socrates in uh, the Republic. And my argument is that Socrates could not save him uh, for a life of philosophy and justice, that uh, Glaucon actually joined this regime of Plato's relatives called the 30 Tyrants. Uh, so it was a sort of spectacular failure. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's, that's yeah, what one more thing about, about, uh, your, the school at university of Austin. So I'm assuming like, based on what you said that you're trying to kind of get people back to the classics yes. and avoid a lot of the, um, trends that you see over, you know, around universities where there's a lot of political influence in, in terms of how we understand things, what we're learning, what children are being indoctrinated with rather than being educated with. The, yes. What, what's kind of gone away is, you know, the, our, our educators teaching us how to think and not what to think. Yes. Uh, so is that something that you, that you guys are really uh, fighting for? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast, um, you know, if you if you if you think about um, 
the philosophical ethos, like what is it like to be a philosopher? What is it like to be a rabbi? Um, that requires practical wisdom. It requires sound judgment. Um, and that's one of the things that I really want to uh, present to the world about our school. We, we want students to be able to bring together um, the best of tradition with the, with the sort of best ideas of the present and to take that understanding that they've developed and bring it out into the world. And I, I would say I want to advertise us as a place that actually uh, strives to develop um, both the sort of ordinary virtues of like intellectual courage, right, and humility, um, and um, I think other virtues, moral virtues that are associated with that moderation and you know so forth, but especially this idea of prudence. If you look at our world today, the thing that's lacking is good judgment. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've got we've got people in all our institutions. That, I mean, and there, there's a whole long story here about perhaps the way that modernity wants to replace judgment with kind of algorithms and procedures and kind of you know rules and principles and so forth. Um, so yeah, I mean, so how do you develop good judgment? You try to see things whole, right? You try to connect experience across multiple domains of human experience and different approaches. Um, and it seems to me that to be a, a flourishing citizen in the world today, you know, we have to start at the beginning. We have to be informed by um, these great books of wisdom. We have to see how that wisdom was appropriated or failed to be appropriated as we move through the ages. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, Part of this is is involved with like look when 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 we study a text at the University of Austin we're not going to tell the students oh by the way this is a book that you should all condemn because its author was a racist or something like that well why are we studying it no 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 here's the words on the page respect it understand it discuss it debate it and like the Talmud multitude of opinions are plausible as long as you you can here's the rule you can give me your opinion right it has to be pertinent to discussion but as long as you're willing to have it examined and you're willing to back it up with arguments so that kind of rationalism i think you know it's a that that, that reminds me of maimonides says uh, accept the truth from whoever says it instead of trying to see who said something try to understand what's being said Yes. Something yeah. Yeah. Not whoever says it, but uh, except truth for whoever source it comes, it doesn't necessarily have to be right. person. But yeah, the same what idea. Is said. Exactly. Except truth by what is said, not who said it. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And I think today, since we're so divided, we look and we say, oh, you know, this was said by somebody who I am predisposed to regard as, you know, throw him out. Me. Yeah, throw him out. You can't do it. Yeah. Um, so we dedicated that, a few podcasts actually to like certain this, segments to do we do we uh you know throw away the art from you know the artist if the artist happened to be like let's say like a Bill Cosby or uh yes. somebody like that. So what what do we do with that? So um yeah. it's a very important thing. And that's I really actually hope... the Alicia Benavuya story in the Talmud. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's really what the question they're posing. Rubenstein, yeah. who we're actually going to have on uh, to actually present that entire Agadah, his entire understanding of that story is exactly that. that I'm going to have to tune accept, in. <laughs> can you accept truth from someone who did not exemplify uh, exceptional character, right? Yeah. And in his case, he was he was a sinner. He was an apostate. Yes, yes, that, yes That's yes. how he understands the story of Elusha ben Avuya and what, what the Talmud is presenting to us, this conundrum. Mm -hmm. So it just flowed with what you said. Yeah. So. That's, that's excellent. Yeah. 
thank you we, so much. We thank you so much. And the yeah. one last thing before we go, yeah. I did notice somewhere when I was looking at some of your bios, you wrote um an essay on theologies regarding the uh, 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 theologies on the Holocaust. Yeah, I've 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 uh well, um I'm going to have to go look. Um I have I have written on that subject. But I'm not sure which essay you're referring to. So, yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking that perhaps maybe down the line, if if you'd ever want to do it again, maybe that could be a topic since you've written about it. That we it can could discuss. be. It, <laughs> yes, yes, it could be. I've I've certainly taught that material, and it's uh, it's uh, boy, that's you talk about big questions. Oh, yeah. Gosh. Yeah. 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 I'll, listen, I'll, I will have to gird my loins if we do that. <laughs> so, but hey, listen, this has been really delightful. It's uh, it's exceeded my expectations completely. Have being able to talk with you guys, and I'm going to have to listen to the Jeffrey Rubenstein yeah. because that sounds fascinating. So we'll I'm really like I think I actually think the the Rubenstein episode that we did before, and even the the episode we did with uh, Professor Len Goodman, oh, yeah. oh, oh, yes, right yes. up your alley. Len, Len is a good friend of mine. And oh, he is, uh, yeah, he's 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 fantastic. I, I I have the greatest respect for him. So, uh, well, great. Well, thank we're you. Gonna, we're going to have him on again, by the way, too, to talk about his book on justice. But it's such a hard book. It's, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the only kind of book he writes, you know. But he's good. he's absolutely amazing. Yeah. All right, thank you, thank guys. Thank you. So we appreciate your Take time. Care. Thank you so much. Okay. Have a wonderful week. Thank Thanks. you. you too. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.